Welcome back to Ether Hour, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin, back here with a fantastic episode, kind of throwing it back to some of the early days of Ether Hour. Be sure to listen to our second episode, because it'll be a great prelude to this one. We're talking about, of course, Tsar Paul I, one of the shortest reigning, but oft-beloved czars of the Russian Empire of the Romanov dynasty, and there's been a lot of speculation. This is kind of a companion piece to a article that you can read on our Substack on the worldwarnow.co platform about whether or not Tsar Paul was a Freemason. This has been posited by certain detractors and whatnot, and in general, we're going to be exploring that idea, you know, some facts around his potential sainthood and sanctity and our general take on this historical figure. Dimitri, how are you doing? Very good, Conrad. I think it's just important to cover this particular figure, given the fact that, look, in the in the near future, we will be actually most likely subjected to an analysis of his potential canonization, given that the Russian Orthodox Church will probably, I would say, in the next five to ten years, be honestly really considering this figure up the sainthood in the church. And you may be, you know, a bit confused, you know, some of the listeners, like, why, why would a random Russian Tsar be considered for sainthood? Well, firstly, he's not random. He was, in fact, probably despite the short reign, four and a half years, even, you know, the length of the reign of certain presidents, especially that in the US, and even less than, say, Vladimir Putin, who gets to be president for six years at a time. Tsar Paul was very instrumental in actually setting the the pace and actually adjusting the Russian autocracy, at least setting the Russian culture on a more patriotic and a more orthodox front in the Russian Empire. You can notice that if you look at Russian history, in the 1700s, there was a very uh, strong sort of wave of westernizations which took place. And this, of course, affected the culture very negatively. And Tsar Paul essentially sets Russia on the correct course by forcefully, of course, adjusting certain uh, trends in the nobility and adjusting certain uh, trends in, in the church as well, I would say, by cementing the, the authority of the Tsar, especially amongst amongst the, the regular people, actually showing people that the power of the Tsar is, in fact, hereditary by instituting his most famous, I would say this is probably his most lasting work, would be that act of inheritance which he passes, you know, speaking about the the inheritance of the throne in Russia. This is like a massive document. You can you can call this the constitution, you know, it's the constitution of the Russian Empire in, in, in anything but name itself. And what's interesting is this document is not just a political sort of writing about who inherits the throne and, you know, the succession of the imperial power in Russia, but it actually begins by stating that, you know, all birth is determined by God and providentially by by the will of the Lord, you know, who you come from and who you originate from will determine who will essentially arise and ascend to the throne itself in Russia, which is very important because, again, uh, you don't, Russia, these Russian emperors and these Russian tsars, the elites, they knew exactly what took place in the Byzantine Empire at times. When most emperors wanted to begin and wanted to have you know, plenty of children, wanted their children to succeed them and have successful dynasties, but that didn't take place because of various conspiracies, various coups. And in fact, as most of you probably know, Tsar Paul's reign, his four and a half year short reign, was actually ended in a coup in and of itself. And this coup was essentially started and uh you know started internally but of course with some assistance from potentially foreign powers although there's very little evidence that it was actually completely orchestrated from abroad it was mostly an internal coup of you know, detractors in the nobility who were members of masonic lodges who wanted to take him down and you know he was greatly unpopular amongst the elites of the russian society which is very interesting if you 
bringing Saint Paul's reign to you know analogize it with those you know the reign of Nicholas II, who also the nobility and the aristocracy and the elites of his day, including those in the military, actually did turn against him in the end, which is very interesting given the fact of given the fact that his reign was very very successful. So success doesn't always dictate the length and duration of your reign, nor does it indicate whether or not your subjects and your citizens will actually appreciate what you do for them. And we see this in the biblical story of various, uh, you know, Tsars in the Old Testament, as well as maybe even in the life of Christ himself, right, who was betrayed not just by his apostles, but by the citizens of Judea itself, like those who actually praised him and those who actually greeted him on his uh, entrance into Jerusalem on the donkey who later, of course, chanted, crucify him, crucify him, we want Barabbas and not Christ. So again, we see very similar analog analogies in the life of Tsar Paul. Yeah, I think one of the things that I hear a lot from people that in general want to slander the Romanovs is these accusations of sort of elite, you know, occult going on, you know, that the entire monarchy were these corrupt, you know, elitists that were possibly participating in Freemasonic rituals, you know, doing similar things that often the French revolutionaries accused, you know, Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI them of that, you know, got their all their heads chopped off. So it's sort of this, you hear this from the MAGA communists, you hear this from Haas, Jackson Hinkle type characters who will talk about how all the Romanovs without fail were Freemasonic agents, which is total nonsense. And Tsar Paul is really the only one that some people even can bring any evidence to the table, the evidence being his membership in the Brotherhood of the Knights of Malta. That is one of the things that people often bring up, I was in Russia at the Trechikov Gallery, and they have multiple massive uh, paintings of Tsar Paul. They're very magnificent, and in some of them, there's a lot of Maltese, Knights of Malta symbolism and imagery that is seen in the painting, and it was clearly something that he did care about. So, Dimitri, I guess let's we can talk more about some of his background and early life maybe later in the show when we talk about his sanctity, but to start this off, what what was going on with the whole Knights of Malta thing? Yeah, very interesting. So the Knights of Malta sort of campaign or not Knights of Malta objective, which Tsar Paul set out for himself was basically, it was a mix of actually very pragmatic political outlook, similar to that maybe carried out by Vladimir Putin by actually during the Donbass crisis, Vladimir Putin sought an overseas potential ally in the face of Assad Syria, right? Notice how the Mediterranean ports of Syria were very important for Russia at the time. And many criticized Putin. They said, well, what are you doing wasting resources, you know, trying to prop up the Assad regime? Well, this is exactly what Sarpov sought in the Mediterranean here. The, the Malta was, and this is at a time where plane travel wasn't around. So the only swift travel around the world, this is even before trains, was by ships. And sail ships really needed proper bases, proper logistics, and Malta was in the perfect position, not just having multiple fortresses, but also being this uh, stalwart sort of citadel against Islam and foreign expansion. It was just a symbol of you know unity of Christendom. It was a great place, I think, for Christianity in the Middle East and, and just in, in the Mediterranean setting at the moment next to North Africa. It was just perfectly positioned. And at the time, of course... Malta was greatly at risk of French incursion from Napoleon Bonaparte and from the remnants of the French Revolution. So, of course, the Catholic Knights of Malta, who, you know, many accuse them of being Freemasons, but at the time, Freemasonry was quite a minority minority in the actual Maltese circles. The Knights of Malta really go back to the Crusade, Crusade period and were probably, if anything, were more servants of the papacy and the Pope himself, who, uh, you know, were, at the time, the papacy was very much against 
against any sort of uh, flirting with Freemasons. If anything, the Enlightenment values of Freemasonry were very against the the papacy, as as you can witness in the French Revolution, which Sapol was naturally a witness of. So he he saw the Roman Catholics, especially some of their knightly and political orders, as natural allies against these Enlightenment values brought over from Napoleonic France and revolutionary France at the end of the 1700s. So. Of course, the uh, and he grew up, of course, reading about the Crusades, reading about the Knights of Malta and how they defended themselves against the uh, Islamic Caliphate, the Ottoman Empire. So Sarpol naturally invited one of the magisters to Russia to actually introduce, you know, introduce the idea to the Russian court. And this is very early on in his reign. Even during the reign of Catherine, he invited some Knights of Malta to speak to them, and eventually, the once Napoleon actually captured Malta, the Maltese knights. You know, they couldn't really fight back against the French Navy, so most of them evacuated and Sapol granted them actually a home. And not they didn't just bring, you know, their people and Russia wasn't just a refuge for these knights. And these were talking about hundreds, thousands of knights and military men who would later go on to actually serve Russia in some of its expeditions and wars and actually defend Russia. You know, essentially we're looking at like an equipped Wagner group type, you know, yeah, sure, they're Roman Catholics, but some of them even converted to Orthodox Christianity, Very a very small minority, mind you. And these are very interesting men as well. Knights of Malta, they took on a, an oath of chastity too. So they were unmarried. They were essentially warrior monks, right? So very interesting sort of group of men. So Tsarpul invites them over, and they they don't bring with themselves any sort of Freemasonry. If anything, they bring those, they bring with themselves this connection to the papacy, which was always, always almost at the same level of risk at the time. Remember, Napoleon, of course, humiliates the Pope, forces him to, you know, give him the crown and the, the desecrated Notre Dame. Uh, the Paris Cathedral during his coronation, and the papacy is very much at its weakest state at the at the moment. So Paul uses that as a geo, as geopolitical leverage, in order to potentially have, you know, be given influence over the Roman Catholic world at the time. It's a very smart strategy, in fact. And the Knights of Malta give Paul this potential insight into how to recreate. So Paul seeks to actually reformulate the mindset of the Russian nobility, bring them back to maybe a more knightly period actually changed their their mindset and so he he figures that the best way to do this in a very short time would be to actually inspire the russian nobility especially the military nobility and the majority of russian nobility were actually forced to serve in the military we're talking about like most of the men actually 60 70 percent of the men were members of the russian navy or in the russian army at the time to actually follow the example of the knights so he used the knights as this political tool and it was actually very and essentially a tool of foreign policy and it was very effective and malta actually became a governor of the russian empire for a very short time which was pretty awesome at the time i mean it was literally a russian overseas colony of sorts and the knights of malta became the the citizens of the russian empire now what's interesting is Tsar Paul himself because naturally the knights of malta needed to swear an oath to the pope he himself couldn't be you know even though he was made the Grand Master of the Order, he couldn't, of course, do that. So he forcefully created a, a segment of the Order itself, which was specifically for Orthodox Christians. And he also changed one of the rules in the in the Order's charter, saying that well, married men can join now. So Russian nobility, which were mostly married, of course, to uh, different noble women uh, who were also Orthodox Christians, they could actually now join and become knights. Of course, this escapade and this particular strategy didn't last very long. Uh, because Sarpol was promptly assassinated by his detractors. And actually, one of the conspirators, uh, Palen, was actually one of the Knights of Malta himself. So you can see that this strategy to actually reform the Russian nobility and make them more knightly and give them maybe a, an outlet to actually 
not not something enlightenment based not actually based in freemasonry but maybe based in a more chivalric i would say common european knightly past which russia perhaps are lost since the time of peter the great maybe since the time of the i would say since time of the time of troubles you can say the 1600s when russian nobility was very much based around land ownership and money and not so much about and wasn't really obsessed with say defending the land like we see in the old russian leg legends of the bogatyri and the russian knights uh, like the Brendan Nikitich and Ilya Muromets, that has kind of faded away over time slowly. So Paul wanted to reintroduce that without, of course, these uh, weird Masonic leanings. Now, and this is, of course, one of the accusations was that, well, the Knights of Malta were strictly Masonic and look at all these uh, members of you know, Freemasons who were also Knights, but that's completely untrue. Like the, the Pope condemned Freemasonry 60 years before all of this took place and only a very small minority of the Knights were actually Freemasons. And in fact, the fact that they were members of the Order of St. John, the Knights of Malta themselves, this trumped their Masonic membership because, of course, the Order demanded their full commitment and, of course, chastity, things like that. You know, the, the lack of the lack of various flaws which Masons were known for in the day, like debauchery, drinking, all these things which took place in the lodges and the after parties. The, the Knights didn't participate in this. So, if anything, they were very, uh, a very ch chaste, very, I would say, very based and very pious ascetic order, which was introduced to Russia. And this is one of the uh, one of the perks, I would say, of the era. And Sarpol, it was, of course, something which didn't last long, unfortunately, but Sarpol's plans were not ill-advised ill at all. I think it was a, a grand strategy. We see sort of remnants of it today in the world in terms of uh, similar strategies are being used by the modern Rus Russian leadership. But yeah, I would say most people who actually accuse him of being, you know, a subject to foreign influence actually don't understand that he was in the position of power in all of these agreements and arguments. He wasn't actually under the influence of anything. He was influencing European policy and, you know, strategy and decision making. Yeah, of course, being the offspring of Catherine the Great, there's some pretty, you know, there's a big weight on your shoulders, of course, Catherine with a very long reign. I also keep going back to the museums I visited in Russia because these characters are so prominent there. If you go to the Novorossiya exhibit at the Moscow State Museum, it may as well be a Catherine the Great exhibit. It's not the focus, but everything that, all the story of the origins of, you know, civilization in that region at all is because of Catherine the Great and her reign and a lot of the generals and whatnot that were leading her armies at the time. And even though he had a shorter reign and... Many people look back and, and criticize him. In many ways, the, the much like a lot of the Russian czars, they were some of the most impressive and beloved nobles among the other European nobility. I mean, you hear about how, from quotes from all sorts of letters that he has gotten, how he was one of the best horse riders of his time. He was perfectly spoken in Slavonic, Russian, French, German, was conversational in Latin and whatnot. There was... There's all sorts of these sorts of things. You hear this about Nicholas II, you hear this about Nicholas I and all of these others. And it's just important to remember that why Paul I, despite his short reign, why do we think that he's such an important person to be considered for sainthood? It's because he is the beginning. Unfortunately, no one's considering, not unfortunately, but I don't think anybody's considering Catherine the Great a saint in the church. So when, when, you, when you understand that reality, we have Tsar Paul I, and then his issue, Alexander I, and then... Nicholas I, Alexander II, Alexander III, and Nicholas II. And as we have outlined on social media and in episode two of Ether Hour, all of these men are potential saints in the church. Some of them between Nicholas II, uh, as well as, you know, Alexander I, Fyodor Kuzmich, and of course, Alexander II upon his assassination is often considered martyr and whatnot. It 
seems that with the considerations that if, that can be given for Nicholas I, who that's a serious consideration, and then some charity given to the great leadership ability of Alexander III, Tsar Paul I and his line onwards to the end of the Russian Empire is sort of a, it's sort of like the last grant, you know, God blessed the people with some great emperors as empire and Christian civilization, as it were, was about to enter, for lack of a better word, a bit of a dark age. Oh, 100%. And naturally, the person who sort of pushes Russia into this new, I'll say, age of rejuvenation, right, of orthodox monarchy, orthodox civilization, and essentially what what could have ended with Tsar Nicholas II's reign, the retaking of Constantinople, Catherine the Great, you know, plants those seeds. And as Peter the Great, of course, established the modern Russian army and sort of prevented Russia from being colonized by these uh, colonial imperial powers. But Russia also needed this sort of orthodox Orthodox really strong foundation, or at least a return to this Byzantine, you can say late Roman imperial foundation, which was planted again and given life in the in the Moscow period of its of its history. And Tsar Paul, of course, returns Russia to that. But both in his family life, he sets a really good example for his progeny, as you mentioned, like his children, Alexander the, the first, Nicholas the first, and later his grandchildren. All of them had very successful, very large families, which Tsar Paul himself and his first wife actually set that example. So Maria Fyodorovna, his queen, his wife, was. Uh, they had a very successful, very loving relationship, had 11 children overall. Ten of them, of course, lived on to adulthood successfully, uh, You know, which is surprising for the day. And only one of the children, of course, died shortly after shortly after birth, which, I mean, for, for that time, before antibiotics, this was completely un unprecedented, frankly. It was it was very successful, you know, that the couple both loved each other very, very much. And, you know, frankly, uh, the ratio was very good, too. It wasn't just all girls or all boys. It was four boys and uh, four boys and six girls. All the princesses, of course, married overseas men. They kept to the Orthodox faith. None of them apostatized. It was just a very successful foreign political, uh, well, an opportunity for foreign political marriage for the Romanov as well as the Russian Empire. Um, um, you know, overall. And I would say, like, this is the best example, right, Connor, we speak about, well, why doesn't Germany and Russia ever ally itself, you know, throughout history? Or is that German, was that Russo-German alliance? Well, Tsar Paul actually almost cements that. And, you know, the, probably the greatest German empire that ever existed was the Holy Roman Empire at the time in Austria, which, and the arch, the, the crown prince of Austria, the Archduke, Joseph, he actually married uh, Tsar Paul's oldest daughter, Alexandra. Unfortunately, he dies quite young in his late 20s, so... Thank you so much for listening to the free preview of this episode of Ether Hour, everybody. Be sure to read the article where Dimitri covers more about Tsar Paul and the fact that he was not a Freemason. Be sure to get behind the paywall to hear the rest of this episode, of course. We go into some more details, both in and not in the article. Some interesting anecdotes, some interesting stories, and Tsar Paul, such an interesting character, so I think you're really going to like this one. And getting behind the paywall really supports us. It helps us keep the weekly shows free and provide more historical based and red-pilled content. So be sure to subscribe, get behind the paywall, support us, and thank you so much. God bless. Yeah.